A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Yehudi Gerber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is part two of the Great American Jewish Cities series on Jewish History Soundbites, and part two of Houston, Texas has been generously sponsored by the Kailal of Houston Tyra Center. Once again, in honor of the great rabbis and leaders who were the architects of Orthodox Jewish life in Houston in the last half a century, Rabbi and Rebetzin Joseph Radinsky of the United Orthodox Synagogue, Rabbi and Rebetzin Shimon and Chiena Lazarov, the longtime shlichim of Chabad of Texas, and Rabbi and Rebetzin Yeshua and Freddy Wender of the Young Israel of Houston. And uh, these were the architects of the rebirth of Orthodox Jewry in Houston over the last several decades. And it is to their credit that the Orthodox community in Houston is a vibrant and flourishing present, and not just a fascinating story of the past. Speaking of the Kyle of Houston, um, this is actually recent Jewish history, uh, but just to talk about the impact that one institution can have on a community as a result of the success and growth of the Kyle of Houston, so the Houston Jewish community has become in recent years a true Torah community where families are arriving and uh, joining and it's growing uh, growing due to its influence. There's 30, 40 families moving in to the Koyal neighborhood every year, which is quite astounding. So that's um, a fascinating and important tidbit of modern Jewish history. This is related to another point. One of the Houston old-timers uh, that I was privileged to speak to related to me. Um, in part two, I'm going to touch on some of the surrounding towns around Houston, um, which I mentioned that I would do uh, in, in the beginning, in part one. Um, and the contrast is rather jarring. Houston's community today is flourishing, while some of these other ones, which will profile, uh, remain relics of a past Jewish life, even a Vibrant Jewish life uh, at times, but relics today, and nothing, not much left of it uh, today. And it is um, <clears throat> illustrative of the lack of long term success when institutional infrastructure and in Jewish education is lacking. And this is exemplified, for instance, in the Hempstead uh, community and some of the other communities of Southern Texas that will discuss the immigrant and second generation. Families who settled in these towns focused on acclimating into American life and making it financially su- financial success. And ultimately, those Jewish communities 
almost completely disappeared or even entirely disappeared. The Jewish cemetery in this town of Hempstead, which is not far from Houston, is a microcosm of the story of the Jews in exile when there's a lack of investment in institutions to guarantee a Jewish future. Some of the oldest tombstones in the Jewish cemetery in Hempstead are completely in Hebrew. Uh, the ones of the next generation are, and you can actually trace it with the dates, and this um, um, visitors uh, to the cemetery have related this to me. I obviously have not, but so I was told. Um, but later, later ones um, were mixed Hebrew and English, and then later on, the more recent ones are are exclusively uh, the tombstones are in English, and then in more recent times, you have even cremated remains of uh, uh, in the cemetery. So it's you know a, a complete assimilation uh, of of Jewish life in the United States. With Houston, it's 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 it took a while to build the infrastructure, but ultimately it did prevail. And today there's Jewish schools and high schools and girls' schools and a koilel and a strong Sephardic community, which is always good for Jewish community growth. And all this together uh, maintains a Jewish community, improves to be an attraction to new members to join it by moving from other areas of the United States as like-minded individuals join in recent history and continue to do so. So, like I said, we'll uh, wrap up Houston that we started in part one. We'll move on to Galveston, which is a great story, and some of the other smaller towns in the vicinity. I just want to give a thank you to Houston uh, residents of Houston who assisted me with the research and sources source material for both of these episodes, both part parts one and two. I actually did give a shout out in part one, and unfortunately, in the editing, that part got uh, lost uh, as well, which sometimes happens. Um, so it was supposed to have been proclaimed in part one as well. Uh, but he, but uh, I want to thank Rabbi Meish Friedman of the Houston Kyle, Doctor Zev. Monk and other members of the Monk family who um, were very gracious with their time um, and knowledge uh, to share sources, stories, uh, and uh, and uh, background of and other Texas natives as well, um, residents of Houston for assisting me with the research and providing sources and information. Um, also got some great feedback from part one. I want to read one letter in its entirety, uh, which is a great, great, uh, you know, additional uh, tidbits. Uh, Here it goes. Thank you for your recent episode about our neighbors to the south in Houston. Parenthetically, this was written by someone who I think lives in Dallas or some other place in Texas. So they're neighbors to the south in Houston. Um, I'm going to continue the letter. A few facts you might find interesting. Number one, standing at 6'6", Rabbi Joseph Radinsky Zatzal was at one time one of the tallest rabbis in the United States of any denomination. In the episode, you mentioned that one of the first Jews in Houston moved there from Charleston, South Carolina. As it happens, Rabbi Radinsky's brother, Rabbi David Radinsky, who's still alive, was the rabbi in Charleston for close to four decades. Number two, Saul Goodman's son, Mordechai Goodman of blessed memory, who passed away in 2018, was the legendary owner of Pizzeria Efrat, who sponsored the American Football League that yeshiva guys in Israel loved to join. His son Yosef of blessed memory um, um, was killed in 2006 during a parachuting drill with the 
with the Maglan unit, in which he cut his instructor loose and saved his life while sacrificing his own. That's a, a, a tragic story at the end, but a fascinating story, and, and the tidbits were great. Um, I also got quite a bit of feedback from a lo- several listeners. I mentioned that uh, one of the shuls in Houston became conservative, but they maintained an Orthodox service on the side. And I noted how I wasn't aware of this practice, but I'm assuming that it existed in other places as well. As it turns out, it exists in quite a few other places, even in recent times, and even until this very day. There are isolated uh, conservative temples out there that have an Orthodox service in a side room or specific times, and several uh, listeners pointed this out in other cities, North Carolina, Chicago, and other places. Um, So thank you for that. Um, So... Uh, there's actually one uh, resi- uh, Houston uh, uh, resident that I pa- happen to know personally. Uh, David uh, Mitzner knew his family. I'd never met him. I read his book. Uh, who is a Warsaw Jew, a, one, probably the last graduate in the world of the Tachkamoni School in Warsaw. And he, uh, after surviving the war and losing his entire family, he was in Siberia, um, he came to Houston and uh, achieved uh, financial success there and uh, and was also a great uh, philanthropist and builder of the Houston Jewish community. So that's uh, another another um, another personality. Oh, I'm going back to Houston and the pre-war Houston. Just wrap up a few points. There was another rabbi there um, who who passed away quite young. He was in his low forties. His name was Rabbi Ram Israel Schechter. And he was born in Vizhnitz in, in Romania, had recently on, on Bukovina, on, on Romania, an episode. So this fellow was a Romanian rabbi from Vizhnitz, and he immigrated to the United States in 1922. Uh, he taught for a time at the Hebrew Theological College in Chicago, and later was a rabbi in Houston. Later on, his last years uh, before his untimely passing, he was in Rhode Island. But very often when European rabbis, fundraising, Rashi Yeshiva, uh, others would, would arrive in Houston, he would be the, the, uh, the Heimish rabbi who would host them. In other words, he would be the, the go-to person for the, the European visitors uh, during the interwar period. Um, but, um, but the big boom of the growth in the Houston Jewish community uh, is, is post-war, and not, not just post-war, but in the 1960s. And what changes Houston in a general sense, not specifically the Jewish community, in general, the Houston city, Houston as a city, grows because of the advances in technology of air conditioning. And um, because Texas, southern Texas was quite hot, and until until air conditioning became a common in the common homes, uh, Houston had, had slow but steady growth, but the big population explosion came with air conditioning. Um, very became a very huge, spread out city, and and eventually the three Orthodox synagogues, uh, which were more traditional, not really Orthodox, they merge and they become one: the United Orthodox Synagogue, which which I mentioned last time, and Rabbi Joseph Radinsky, who moves it from traditional to Orthodox. He I mentioned I started to talk about this last time. He builds a mechitza. And he gets rid of the microphone. So he's changing all kinds of customs in the shul. He's building a mechitza, making it an official Orthodox shul. He gets rid of the microphone. It's unclear if at the same time the custom of banging on trash cans was discarded as well because that unique 
Houston custom seems to have continued until recent history when when it was discarded, when it became a national scandal. But that wasn't limited to the to the Jewish community. It could be it wasn't even in the Jewish community altogether. Uh, but um, the Chabad, uh, Chabad comes also in the 1970s. Rabbi Shimon Lazaroff, uh, who, who, st- who starts off by teaching in the Texas uh, Hebrew Academy, which was started in 1969, which was the first Orthodox uh, Hebrew day school affiliated with Torah Masora. And then Rabbi Shimon Lazaroff was, uh, eventually was able to open his own day school, have his own institutions, the mikveh, and then he expanded all over Texas. Um, the and he he hired Shlichim of of Lubavitch to be all over Houston, all over Texas, family members, um, and tremendous uh, chesed, a chesed organization called the Aishel House for medical patients to Houston because there's many many Jewish visitors coming to utilize the, the great medical facilities available in Houston. So this incredible organization has tens of apartments for these visitors, providing them with food and incredible amount of. Of, uh, of real, real, good old Jewish uh, kindness and caring uh, for one another. Um, so about 20-some-odd years ago, Torah Masora uh, started to push that a kolel should be established in in Houston. And um, you have uh, Rabbi Wender, who I also mentioned was the rabbi of the Young Israel. So he was involved in this endeavor. And and uh, and in fact, he had been a, a alumnus of the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva in Queens, and Rabbi Hanach Leibowitz was involved from the outset. He was the one who, in fact, sent Rabbi Wender to come to Houston in the, fear, in the first place. And Rabbi Hanach Leibowitz was involved in the Houston Orthodox Jewish community's growth, even by personally visiting the city uh, several times. And Rabbi Hanach was a big inspiration for the growth of the community in the early years. So you have Rabbi Hanach's involvement, you have Rabbi Wender's involvement, you have Terry Masera's involvement, and all this comes together... It, you had prior to that in the 1980s, you had the SNL collapse, the savings and loans collapse was very detrimental to the city's growth. So you needed to recover from that. In general, the Houston economy, the Texas economy, and uh, and and this. So there's this period of regrowth following that. And um, Rabbi Shua Wender, together with Torah Masora, they start a kollel with some of the local uh, community activists. Uh, you had Rabbi Yaakov Lipsky from Ner Yisrael, and that original kollel d- dissipated, but it, 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 it became this Jewish outreach organization, which continues to be vibrant. But then 10 years ago, the Lakewood uh, kollel arrived and really took off very successful, I mentioned earlier, uh, led by Ramesha Friedman, and there's an influx of young religious families in the last several years, uh, which uh, it's it's growing now, hundreds of of families poised for more growth, another few hundred homes being built as we speak. So, uh, that's so I, so I understand. Another school opens, another shul. There's a Sephardic shul, Bravram Yakobian, and there's another school, and there's uh, all kinds of things going on. So the pioneers for this post-war growth is, is Rabbi Radinsky of the United Orthodox uh, Synagogue, and it's to his credit that it becomes Orthodox. Um, the... Uh, the and Rabbi uh, Lazarov of Chabad, and then Rabbi Wender of the Young Israel. They're all the, the three major uh, pioneers, and of course many others who contributed as well. So this interesting, this Rabbi Shimon Lazarov, who's the head shliach in in Houston. So he was born in the Soviet Union, where his grandfather was the rabbi of Leningrad. Today, back to its old name, Saint Petersburg. Um, so 
So he comes from, from Leningrad, from the Soviet Union, to then to Paris, and then the Rebbe sends him to become the first shliach in Texas in 1972. And he and his Rebbetzin uh, facilitate this incredible growth of, of Chabad branches and activities all over Texas, and uh, in increase, in, you know, in, in outreach and, and everything, you know, the camp, college campuses, synagogue, a Torah day school, uh, summer camps, a Hebrew school, community, Chabad community, a mikveh, everything, uh, you know, just an enormous amount of expansion, kashrus organization. And, um, and 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 branches all over Texas. So it's a, quite an impressive endeavor being run there. You also have the uh, Hebrew Academy, which I mentioned, which w- w- due to the Barron's family's contribution became the Robert Barron Academy, uh, which is related to the more famous Denver uh, uh, Barron's. But there's a, a branch, an oil branch in Oklahoma uh, and in Texas, and. Um, and uh, Nancy uh, Baron Alexander uh, was a, a big builder in the Houston Jewish community uh, as well. Uh, the Hebrew Academy of South Texas was started by Professor Baruch Brody, which uh, in that, and that school developed into becoming the main day school of Houston as well. Another, just another tidbit of, of Houston Jewish history is a tragic instance. Was the was a Jewish astronaut on the Challenger, um, Judith Resnick. Um, she, she did not grow up in Houston, only lived there uh, in connection with NASA, but um, she had a perfect SAT score, which I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's become more common since then, but I think when she got it, she was pretty much the only one in the country who had achieved that, that uh, feat, or it was at least a very rare achievement. Um, then one goes on to Carnegie Mellon, an engineer, an astronaut, and unfortunately she was one of the... Uh, the uh, astronauts uh, killed in the in the uh, that tragedy of the Challenger. Uh, there's also a Holocaust museum in Houston. That's also a good piece of Jewish history, and they give out an a, an award, the LBJ Lyndon Baines Johnson Award for Moral Courage. Ironically, one of the recipients of that award was to John McCain for what he went through during the Vietnam War. Now, just I need a reminder from the listeners. Which president was the one who brought the United States into the Vietnam War again? Okay, so there you have it, that John McCain gets the LBJ Award for Moral Courage. Moving on to other towns uh, outside of Houston, you have uh, Hempstead, which I mentioned, Texas, which like so many other Texas towns, Hempstead was born out of the railroad when the Houston and Texas Central Railroad announced its route in 1856. So investors bought up land around it and created the town of Hempstead in 1858, the first train rolled through the area, and Hempstead was officially became a town. So the Civil War interfered, but after the war continued to grow, it was in the middle of cotton country, and it emerged as a regional shipping and processing center for cotton. The Jewish story in in uh, in Hempstead is related to the Schwartz family. They're the prominent Jewish family of Hempstead. So several members of the Schwartz family immigrate in. The, in the mid 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 nineteenth century, and eventually, Rabbi Chaim Schwartz, uh, Rabbi Chaim Schwartz, made the fateful decision to leave Posen in in uh, in uh, Polish Prussia and immigrate with his wife and five children, which several of his children had already moved prior. 
Um, and he's this an ordained rabbi and a scholar. And at the time, the United States was not was known as was was known as a, a wasteland for Jewish scholarship, uh, especially a small Texas town like Hempstead. And nevertheless, Schwartz and Rabbi Schwartz and his wife decided that the, that family was more important, and they decided to move together and rejoin. And they came to Hempstead in 1873. And Rabbi Schwartz was the first rabbi in Texas to have official rabbinical ordination. And he brings a safer tire with him from Poland, from Posen. While Rabbi Schwartz would occasionally lead services at Beth Israel in Houston and also at Emmanuel in Dallas, but he lived in Hempstead. That's where uh, he stayed. He was Orthodox. He shechted his own kosher meat and poultry. His presence in Hempstead led the local Jewish community to begin to organize during Pesach. He would invite all the town's Jewish residents to his home for a Seder. As many six, as many as 60 people would gather around Rabbi Schwartz's Seder table. In 1880, Benno Schwartz, who was his son, and Sam Schwartz, who was another branch of the family, they built a small wooden synagogue. And its official name was the Hempstead Hebrew Congregation, but it was soon popularly known as Heichel Chaim, named after Rabbi Chaim Schwartz, who passed away in 1900. And uh, so it became known as the Chaim Schwartz uh, Synagogue. So Congregation Chaim Schwartz continued to serve the Hempstead small Jewish community even after Rabbi Schwartz died. By 1907, the congregation had 25 families, um, and uh, by now is another member of the family leading the service, still in Hebrew, still Orthodox, but the congregation eventually became Reform. They moved the services to Friday night so that people could open their stores on Saturday morning, so they're officially joining the Reform uh, movement. Um, they adopted the Reform prayer book, but they never actually joined the officially uh, Union of American Hebrew Congregations. Um, even after some of the other Schwartzes passed away in the early 1900s, but uh, Congregation Chaim Schwartz continued to hold regular service in, this, in a small backyard shul for another two decades. But by 1939, the congregation had dwindled in size. They were no longer able to support regular services. And uh, the community kind of fell apart. Uh, the remaining members of the community decided to donate the Sefer Torah, which was the same Sefer Torah brought to Hempstead by Rabbi Schwartz in 1873 to Houston's newly founded Reform Temple Emmanuel in 1944. If you go to the Hempstead Jewish Cemetery today, so first of all, you can find Confederate war veterans, which is interesting. Um, that you have, you have that with the you know, official military uh, tombstones for Jewish Confederate uh, war veterans. And it's also, like I said, a microcosm of Jewish history in the diaspora. You have Rabbi Chaim Schwartz's uh, tombstone in Hebrew and others, and then it moves on to mixed and English, like I said. Um, assimilation of uh, Jewish life, uh, um, uh, the there's all west of Houston. There's all kinds of town, loads of towns that had Jewish history. There's an incredible website actually that systematically covers every single town and city in Texas which had a Jewish population and traces their history, their development, and very often their decline. A fascinating story, especially for me, because until I did this episode, my knowledge of Jewish history in the Lone Star State was quite scant. Um, another town, for instance, was Brenham, Texas, which was north of Houston. Um, they, had, they had a shul that was moved in its entirety to Austin, which was funded by Michael Dell of the Dell uh, Computers in, up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, there's a Jewish cemetery still in Brenham. 
I'll try to get back to Brenham and other Texas towns in a future Texas episode because there's so much there, but I would like to uh, do the last few minutes of this episode about Galveston, which is such a fascinating story. It's in, it's a port, it's an island, it was at one point in the 19th century the largest city in Texas, it had a rise and fall mainly due to the weather, hurricanes, uh, the, 19, the Great Flood of 1900 was uh, uh, probably the greatest natural disaster in American history, um, but for many years, it was the largest and one of the most important ports in the South for decades. So the first, it was actually the first Jewish community in Texas, before Houston. The Jews of Galveston have been an integral part of the city's epic rise and decline. Arriving just as the town was laid out in 1838, they continued for many years. Uh, although the Galveston Jewish community today is, is much smaller and still struggles uh, with the challenges faced by small Jewish communities across the South, it's still... It, officially still in existence. Um, Jewish settlement in Galveston grew in the first half of the 19th century. By 1856, it was already a somewhat organized Jewish community, had their own cemetery. The progress of the Galveston Jewish community, like most areas of the South, was interrupted by the Civil War. And uh, in fact, it was a battlefront of the Civil War. The Union military captured the city early on in the conflict, and most Galveston Jews moved to Houston, some went to Mexico, where they were able to ship cotton through the Union blockade. There was one Jewish woman named Rosanna Osterman, who was one of the architects of the Galveston Jewish community, whose husband Joseph had died in 1861, and Rosanna decides to remain in Galveston during the war. And she nursed the wounded of both the Union and the Confederacy, whoever controlled the town, in her home. Uh, someone who was wounded, they get treatment, doesn't matter which side they're on. And according to legend... Of course, this is never verified. Osterman overheard crucial troop information while nursing Union soldiers and shared it with the Confederate forces, enabling them to retake the city in early 1863. Go figure. Nevertheless, the Union continued its blockade of the port, and the business in Galveston suffered during the war. So Rosanna Osterman was dedicated to building the local Jewish community. After she died tragically in a steamboat explosion in 1866, right after the Civil War, her will provided money to start various Jewish organizations in Galveston. It included uh, a cemetery for another $1,000 at that time for the Jewish Benevolent Society, another one for a Jewish school in Galveston, another $5,000 for the construction of a synagogue, um, another one for Beth Israel, which is already an established shul, as well as to Jewish organizations and charities around the whole entire country. Through her will, Osterman was able to jumpstart the Galveston Jewish community. Uh, so she's a antebellum Arab philanthropist, uh, which you know is a instigates the growth of Galveston after the Civil War. So there's the formation of Congregation B'nai Israel in 1868 and the construction of their synagogue in 1870. From its founding, it was a Reform congregation, um, which you know, which is understandable, given that the German heritage of its members and the cultural assimilation which was taking place in the South at this time, so it was completely reform. And um, and uh, the the course of B'nai Israel and the Galveston Jewish community was forever changed with the arrival of Rabbi Henry Cohn, who's also a reform rabbi, uh, and he arrives on the in Galveston in 1888 for the next 64 years. Uh, Rabbi Cohn put his indelible stamp on B'nai Israel and set a, remar a remarkable standard for rabbinic involvement in the larger community. He was a 
he was involved in, in everything and everything. He was the, after the great hurricane of 1900, Rabbi Cohen helped maintain order in the city, organized a relief commission. According to local legend, he was even able to, uh, uh, together with 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 the Catholics in Galveston, to prevent the Ku Klux Klan from marching on the island. Uh, when Cohn learned that the U.S. Navy had no Jewish chaplains during World War One, he lobbied successfully to get legislation allowing for rabbis to serve as Navy chaplains. R- rabbi Henry Cohn might be the most famous rabbi in Texas history, and he plays a crucial role in the reason Galveston is known today in Jewish history, the Galveston Plan, um, in the role that Texas plays in Jewish immigration during the period of the great immigration to the United States from 1881 to 1924. So Texas plays a role during seven of those years, eight of those years, from 1907 to 1914, which is, I find, a bit of an irony of this Galveston plan of Texas and immigration in general, because this is one of the great ironies of American history in general, uh, not so much American Jewish history, but the relationship of Texas and U.S. and the United States and Mexico um, it, how does it begin? And that's, of course, a story of American history and the Alamo and Mexico and the Mexican War and all that. Um, not for now. But it really begins with illegal immigration. Everyone ready for this? Illegal immigration from the United States to Mexico. That's right. Americans will, inf- will are infiltrating the border into Mexico to what was then Mexico, which is the area of Texas today. And Mexico tried to curtail U.S. immigration there, because in Mexico, slavery was prohibited. Americans were bringing in slavery, all these other terrible things, and they didn't want Americans coming into Mexico. So they tried to stop it at the border. Um, And this resulted in a steady stream of illegal immigration, of Americans illegally immigrating into Mexico. So um, that became a huge uh, problem and a crisis, which led to all kinds of things of Texas independence and later on Texas joining the Union and uh, and lots of other exciting tidbits of of uh, American history. But the so Texas continues to play a role in Jewish Jewish immigration. The Galveston plan was from 1907 until 1914 and um, the idea was that all these ports on the eastern seaboard were were being crowded with Jewish immigrants. Uh, so the idea was to get them, some of them to go to Galveston instead. While Galveston paled in comparison to the great East Coast immigration ports like New York and Baltimore and other places, there was this effort to transform Jewish settlement in America by encouraging immigration through this Texas port. National Jewish leaders like Jacob Schiff worried that the num- growing number of poor Jewish immigrants concentrating in northern cities like New York would lead to calls to restrict Jewish immigration to the United States, which they did not want. They wanted there to be unrestricted Jewish immigration to the United States because the national American Jewish leaders saw them the, 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 the immigration as saving the Jews of Russia from the Tsar and from anti-Semitism. So Schiff's plan was to disperse these newly arriving Jews more evenly throughout the country by encouraging them to come through the port of Galveston instead of New York. Galveston was selected because... It had railroads. It had Rabbi Henry Cohn, who would become the leader of this uh, and the face of this uh, immigration reception. And because uh, the, the idea was that they would spread throughout Texas and the Midwest and even the West, no one would actually remain in Galveston. Uh, they would head out, get on trains and go to other places. Um, so during their brief time in Galveston, the immigrants were visited by Rabbi Henry Cohn. He would serve as their Yiddish translator. 
And um, about 10,000 Jewish immigrants came to Galveston under the auspices of the Galveston movement. Um, most of them did not remain on the island. They went into Texas and other places. And it has to be seen within the greater context of Jewish immigration. There's this endless stream of Jewish immigration into New York. And it seemed like it would never end. Um, and other ports on the eastern seaboard. You had all types of plans, like the Industrial Removal Office, um, to remove Jews from New York and put them in other cities. That was a huge operation. Thousands of Jews were uh, um, relocated that way. You had the ones that tried to get them to go to Argentina and have agricultural colonies, Baron Hirsch, his plans. There are other plans to get the immigrants not to overcrowd in New York because it was becoming impossible. Um, so Galveston was a modest uh, chapter within the greater context of the Great Immigration in comparison to some of these other plans. But the Galveston plan, as well as these other ones, such as the Industrial Removal Office, are a topic, are a topic worth exploring further. Hopefully we'll find an opportunity to do so sometime soon. Um, so you had these very European immigrants. If you look at the pictures of these 10,000 Jewish immigrants arriving in Galveston, they have beards and the women have head coverings. There's even an afternoon Talmud Torah. But they very quickly acclimate into uh, American life, uh, and traditional Judaism, for the most part, fell by the wayside. Um, in the, one of the um, interesting exceptions uh, to, the, to that was Rabbi Yaakov Geller, who I'm going to get to in a second, as we describe the different shuls that existed in Galveston. So he mentioned B'nai Israel, Rabbi Kohn, um, and desiring a more orthodox religious practice, so these Eastern European immigrants established their own congregations, and here it was a rare instance where it was with the encouragement of the Reform Temple B'nai Israel. In 1888, B'nai Israel lent a Torah to a group of Russian Jews who had begun to pray together in their own synagogue in Galveston. In 1894, they established the Young Men's Hebrew Association with the express purpose of creating a place for the poor Orthodox, Orthodox immigrants to worship. In 1895, the group formally established their own congregation known initially as Ahavas Israel. The Orthodox congregation hired Rabbi Yaakov Geller as their rabbi by 1900, and then they construct a synagogue, and, uh, and this Rabbi Geller was a chassid of the Chartkover Rebbe, Rabbi Israel Friedman. He immigrates to, from Galicia to the United States, and he's this rabbi in Texas, and a pioneer of Orthodox Jewish life in the state, in Galveston later on, in Houston also. He was a rabbi in Galveston from 1892 to 1911, and then in Houston until his passing in 1930. Uh, his son was Rabbi Mordechai Geller, who was a rabbi in Houston until his passing in the 1960s. Uh, rabbi Geller lived next door to the kosher butcher shop that his wife uh, Sarah ran, and they also had a barn next to the shop with two cows for milk, said their own Chal of Yisrael. Um, and uh, their home had a, 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 an attic which they used as a third floor. So during the 1900 hurricane that destroyed the city, they all went up to the attic on the third floor. And actually during the eye of the storm, Rabbi Geller swam across the street to get a family, to rescue a family that they were friends with. So they had these two families um, sitting on this third floor. And one of the cows, who happened to be named Bessie, uh, managed to climb up in the hay and survive the storm. So they had fresh milk the next day, even after the storm. So there was a couple of Orthodox shuls. They didn't get along with each other, but they both got along with the Reform B'nai Israel, ironically. And they, they all attended, the Orthodox children attended the Sunday school at the Reform Temple at the invitation of Rabbi Kohn. Um, so, um, but then these two Orthodox congregations merged in 1930 to form Beth Jacob, and they hired a rabbi, Rabbi Louis Fagan, 
um, and he leads the congregation for close to 30 years. Um, and then uh, in 1971, Beth Jacob shifts over to the conservative movement and, and the small Jewish community in Galveston continues until today. Another last tidbit about Galveston is that Jonathan Pollard was born in Galveston, interestingly enough. And he moved at a young age to uh, somewhere else, I think Indiana or something. Um, this is a little bit more about Houston and Galveston and that whole area of South Texas. This is Yehuda Gebru with the Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGebru.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.